Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of tripping through time and space to enjoy great games from the master of old school <laughs> gaming, Richard Taholka, who created Fringeworthy, Bureau 13, and a host of other games. We thank you for joining us once again. This week, we're going to be talking about Bureau 13 through the ages. In other words, we're going to go back and say, what was Bureau 13 adventuring like at various points in its history, starting all the way back right after the Civil War up through the future? John, Trav, tell me, how much of the black powder supplement got into the Bureau 13 source book? The D20? Oh, boy. I did the timeline meshing of all the various Bureau 13 products. So as far as the timeline and what transpired up to modern day, that's what got into it. I mean, like the equipment and all that, not so much. Uh-huh. So if you want equipment for the Bureau 13 D20, you could check in the Bureau 13 Black Powder Supplement, available at Crytek Games. What about all the, the backgrounds oh. on the characters and the, and the main people like Lafayette Baker? Not so much, no, no. The one you're thinking of, Travis, D20 passed. Thank you. Yes, yes. Um, that has all of the information as far as how to do the occupations for the modern characters, and especially weapons and armor and equipment. The weapons, they even tell you in the damage charts what year it came out. So you can sit there and say, if I'm playing Bureau 13 Pulp Era, I need a gun that came out in 1925. Oh, it's this one right here on this page. Were Gatling guns available in this era? Okay, they are, then we can use them in this era. D20 Pass from Wizards of the Coast is really good for Bureau 13 gaming in its earliest incarnations, which is post-Civil War Wild West era, right? which would be known as Black Powder. Still available on Amazon.com. A lot of that is actually available as an SRD. Well, no, it's not. Future is, I know, but not past. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that was a big complaint. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we gave you all this free stuff, but we didn't give you everything. <laughs> all right, so let's go back to the very beginning. The premise was that the North almost lost the Civil War due to the intervention of supernatural forces on the side of the South. They were helping the South. And so President Lincoln said, we need some kind of force not so much police the supernatural, but identify immediate and emerging threats from the supernatural against the very stability of the United States. He went to Lafayette Baker, a famous yet not very well-liked officer, and tasked him with the job of creating this new cabinet post, this secret cabinet post, to go out and do this job. If you were back there in the beginning then I don't really know how he would pick you. I think he just pretty much picked people that he trusted from the forces that he was involved with and just kind of literally drafted them into what became the Bureau. Yeah, basically he just picked his old army buddies. And a lot of them had some skills that were less than reputable, if I remember from Bureau 13 Black Powder. A couple of them were just flat-out rogues. I mean, these guys were just some, from what I was reading, some shady characters, yet they were in the army. It was along the lines of, uh, you're in the army, or you might want to do jail time. Hey, look, and my uniform is where. But these guys had the skills that diplomacy and bluff and, you know, maybe demolitions, these type of skills that were needed where they would have to fight these new threats to the Union. So they weren't very heroic characters. They were just being asked to do heroic things. No, some of them were true blue Union soldiers, and they were American to the core, but 
There were a few in there that were not quite on the side of the Angels, but they were still in the Army. It's just that they were less than the proper, what's the term I'm looking for, spit and polished soldier. They weren't all West Point graduates. All of them just joined because they were fighting to save the Union or maybe to get away from, you know, their past in their town. They figured, well, I might as well join the Army, and they got drafted by Baker. Right, and to a man, they were loyal to Baker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Baker, from what I gathered, Baker was the type of guy, he'd go into hell with you, you know, if you were going into hell. He he, he got his hands dirty. And in this job, it was a new type of dirt, but he, he was loyal. He was loyal to Lincoln, from what I read. Baker, when he started the Bureau, he didn't use magic. He was like, no, all supernatural is bad. Mm-hmm. Actually, the Bureau did not start using magic until, I believe the mid to late 1880s it escapes me right now either 1884 or 1889 right but then he hired on a witch and an alchemist because he just realized we're getting our you know what's handed to us by these magical beings we need to fight fire with fire so he hired a witch and an alchemist and brought them into the bureau and that's when magic started first being used by bureau 13 they were up against supernatural creatures he didn't seem to have any good source for arcane knowledge. By going to an arcane practitioner, it seemed like a good way of finding out the things that you needed to know. You oh, yeah, an information source, yeah, but let, if they, all they were using was, like, guns and, and the occasional cannon and, you know, maybe a cavalry saber, and you got creatures throwing fire and lightning and people throwing spells at you, after a while you're going to want people on your side throwing spells back. So, yeah, I, yeah. It, I, I see it as a fighting fire with fire type thing. Yeah, well, There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that oh, you know, no, a no. lot of these creatures have banes. If you don't know what they are, you can't benefit from that. You don't know what their Achilles keel is. Oh, yeah, and the witch and alchemist would know that, that that's their stock and trade, knowing exactly how to counter these things. You get some sort of monster out of the bayous of Narlands. You gotta get some gumbo stick to kill that sucker. Where are you gonna find a gumbo stick? I don't know. You gotta go down to New Orleans and get a gumbo stick. <laughs> Look, guys, let's face it. You know, I don't care what anybody says about, you know, game balance or whatever. One side has magic and the other one doesn't. The side that doesn't have magic is bound to lose. Oh, right. It's an advantage. I'm sorry. It's, it's... Yeah, and, and if Baker, you know, after, well, let's see, after the Civil War. He's basically getting his, you know, what handed to him over 20 years. After a while, he's going to realize, okay, I'm seeing a problem here. We might want to <laughs> get a little bit more of an advantage. And him being a soldier, tactics. That's his stock and trade. I'm, I believe Baker was West Point educated. So, yeah, he's going to sit there and say, okay, we need an edge. We need a level playing field, a term that I use a lot in my own life. So, yeah, he hired the Witch and the Alchemist. And as I said, I don't have their names. I don't have the PDF in front of me now, but... These two were instrumental in getting the Bureau started on using the supernatural instead of actually being afraid of it. I can tell you right now, West Point, one of their books that they study is Sun Tzu. The Art of War, yes. It's still required reading to this day, yeah. Exactly. And Sun Tzu, if he was fighting someone who had magic, what's the first thing he would do? Get magic. (laughs) Yeah. Because... You know, he's a win at any cost kind of guy. You know, it's like, I don't care what your morals are. He's like, it's not about how you feel about war or or, or what you want to do. It's about winning. And if you need magic to win, you get magic. So, yeah, I mean, it was just inevitable. Oh, yeah. But it took him 20 years. I mean, Baker was stuck in his ways. And as I said, after 20 years, it, it took him that long to convince that, you know, to get that viewpoint. But once he did, oh, yeah, everything, you know, they, they started just, okay, we have Banes, we have some spell casting ability, we have divination, we can start finding out, plotting their moves. But they still were a heavily military organization mm-hmm. full of soldiers who they had to get past their prejudices of magic. It was all spooky, and, you know, they these, this witch and alchemist probably took a lot of flack for what they did, and it was very begrudging, and they took a lot from the Baker's Dozen, I believe the term was, that Baker called his closest men. Well, there might have also been a real problem with the allies that they currently had at the beginning, because at the beginning, the only source that they could have had for supernatural information would have probably been the Catholic Church. 
Oh, yeah. And the Catholic Church is not going to be happy when you say, well, I think it's time for us to hire a witch and an alchemist. Yeah. Baker was not a Dale Carnegie graduate. He didn't exactly win friends and influence people. That's one of the reasons why he got stuck on the Bureau, which to him was sort of a job because nobody liked him. And Lincoln figured, well, nobody likes this guy. He's good, but he just is not really a people person. So let's put him in a background position where, you know, he doesn't have to be out and out as a public face. And it worked. I mean, he was there all throughout the early stages of, of Bureau 13. But yeah, he was not exactly a Dale Carnegie graduate, no. <laughs> During this time period, there still would be a few aliens getting past the uh, Shawnee Sentinel and harvesting people off the Earth at this point. There, there, were, there were reports of UFOs from this time period, you know, great airships flying through the air and doing mysterious things. For those of you who don't know, yes, Incursion and Bureau 13 are the same world. Universe. The same universe, yes, it's... One and the same. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that Enshani Sentinel drone, which was keeping the solar system safe from outside, it wasn't 100% perfect. Things still got by. So you're telling me that Richard invented cowboys and aliens first as well? Uh, <laughs> uh, Maybe. Well, you certainly could have played it. I'm just saying, it was there. In the timeline, there was an alien ship that came down and they had, what was it? They wanted a bunch of copper wire and like 1,100 pounds of a boilerplate to repair their ship. And the Bureau, in return, got something known as a transistor. And they just sort of like, oh, we don't need this. They just gave it to us. It's weird. We're not going to use it for now, whatever. Meanwhile, that was the trade. It was like some transistors for you know the copper wire and the boilerplate to repair their ship so they could go home. That was the first alien contact with the Bureau. The first mm-hmm. extraterrestrial contact. Right, that's that's the adventure that's in the actual black powder supplement. Oh, is that the one with the Gens airship, or is that? I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, as I say, I I don't have it out. But it was an airship. That was one of the the adventures in there. It was a, it was an airship that they needed to get fixed so they could go home. So, yeah. yeah, which means they probably got shot by the Ashani Sentinel and crash landed then. <laughs> yeah. If you're playing, therefore, at the very beginning, okay, you're probably going to be one of the first, unless you really want to do that. You could play the original Baker's Dozen, first 12. You could do that, or you could be the ones that came right after that. What you're going to be dealing with initially is an almost complete lack of knowledge about the supernatural. You're literally going to have to be normal people who are having to suddenly look at the world with new eyes, saying there's actually supernatural out there when a lot of people at this point had kind of thrown off all superstitions in light of the new and upcoming rationalism that was beginning to be the major philosophies in the world. Mm-hmm. You're kind of going counter to that. So you're, you're, you're playing somebody who shouldn't be entirely comfortable with the idea that there is the supernatural. I mean, you should raise a lot of fear, and rightly so, because you don't have a uh, a big listing of what all the, the the ways of protecting yourself against various kinds of supernatural and what their banes might be. Yeah, as far as what you would be fighting, part of the reason that Lincoln formed the Bureau was that you not only had the stuff that, like, the American Indians and the Cajuns and, and like, you know, the Appalachian Mountain Folk, all of their folklore and mystical creatures. You had the immigrants bringing their stuff over from Europe, from Asia. So you had leprechauns coming over and Chinese demons on the West Coast and all this. Lincoln was getting beset on all sides because Lincoln in real life was a huge fan of the supernatural. Abraham Lincoln followed that stuff. He he was a believer. And his wife was a spiritualist, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. That or schizophrenic, one of the two, I've heard. Both. Probably both. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> being a spiritualist and being schizophrenic are not mutually exclusive. Right, but yeah, I, I heard that Mary Todd was, you know... She was a little nutty. But the, yeah. point, the point is is that he had someone at home filling his ears full of this kinds of information, even if he what, didn't have his own reasons to know about it. Right, the GMs that are out there that are going to start a black powder campaign... 
just look through the mythology and the, the cryptozoology of the 19th century, late mid to late 19th century, and you've got plenty of things to throw at your players. Anything from American Indian shamans, I said um, the Bureau fought the Chinese Tongs in late 19th century San Francisco, and that was a bloody war. The Bureau and the Tongs went at it. Hammer and Tong? Yeah. <laughs> Those were bloody battles on the West Coast. You had, John mentioned earlier, New Orleans, you know, all of their, you know, all the French Quarter, all the stuff that goes on down there, all the various ghosts and voodoo hoongans and all this. And so you have a well of enemies to throw at these fledgling bureau agents that are going, they do what? This does what? How big is this? And because you were in that point in history, there was still lots of wilderness out there where oh, yes. you could throw practically anything you wanted to and say, yeah, well, by the time we got to the 20th century, all those things had been killed off or died off or moved on or been relocated. So you could literally have dinosaurs marauding in the hills surrounding St. Louis. Yeah, like in, you know, southern Illinois and all that area where it sure. was just... Uh, yeah. east of the St. Louis area. Swamps, you, uh, and of course, all the Bigfoot. I mean, there could have been huge tribes of Bigfoot ranging around out in the West, and in the, especially in the, the Northwest. Oh, where yes. They're supposed to be now. I mean, now we're like, well, if we saw them, you know, if they actually did exist, there would only be a remnant now because we can't find them. Well, back in the 1860s and 1880s, they could have been, you know, a large tribes and people would say, well, those are just mountain men, strange creatures of the hills, without realizing that they were, in fact, supernatural Sasquatch. creatures. Yeah, yeah, right. People were very uneducated. They didn't have a big worldview. They didn't have television where they'd say, oh, yeah, that's not supposed to be there. Actually, for stats on a Sasquatch, I bring to point another D20 product, D20 Future, the Warren in the back of the alien section. They basically said that the Warren, a devolved version of the Warren, were Earth Sasquatch. So if you need stats for that, go to D20 Future and use those if you wanted to play an adventure with Sasquatch in it. Oh, cool. And because, you know, we put this podcast up and it's going to be up for quite a long time, if you're playing the Savage Worlds version of uh, Bureau 13 or you want to try out, you know, because we're we going to be developing it for that if it hasn't gotten there yet. You know, you can always use Deadlands oh, yes. as a source book because, you know, you have Deadlands for Savage Worlds. Using the setting, of course, is not going to work because it's totally different. You know, they've divided up the United States in all kinds of ways. Other things have happened, but you could still take the creatures from it and some of the concepts from it because anything and everything can happen in Bureau 13. It's a really good resource to use. Oh, yes. Going back to the black powder supplement, one of the things that Richard had in it was a huge list of new technologies that were used for the very first time in the Civil War. Things like dirigibles, things like Gatling guns, in other words, automatic uh, rifles, surgery, anesthetics. A better surgery, antiseptic surgery. This was a cusp when this is happening where technology is now coming in. Well, it's uh, the Industrial Revolution. It would be the perfect era for... Steampunk-type campaigns would be black powder in that era, in the latter third of the 19th century. That's perfect steampunk right. yeah. games if you wanted to throw that extra little tweak into a black powder game. It did miss the first successful uh, submarines. I mean, the Hunley, even though it did sink, did sink a, a Union vessel before it sunk. Uh, they just recently realized the Union shot it, and uh, sh the Union soldiers hit it, and they damaged it enough that when they dove, it basically flooded and went down. But it still, it, it took out a ship. In the yeah. Black Powder Supplement, they break it down by decade. Yep. In the 1860s, these were made. In the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, all these various innovations and inventions and procedures and technologies were created in that decade. So you can plot it out saying... Okay, this is 1873. Okay, we can say about this time that this was made. And, of course, if you want to do the D20 parlance, it's PL4, yeah. which is the, the industrial age. Yeah. And so you have all of these various 
technologies that steam and electricity was starting and the internal combustion engine was starting. And if you go by the creation rules for D20, PL5 is cutting edge. You're going to start having maybe a few things that if you really are have these mad gonzo scientists like, um, oh, John Aston's character in Briscoe County, I forget his name, mm-hmm. or legend, you know, Nikola Tesla type characters you can have them making that type of stuff when did the bureau start leapfrogging technology first year same level technology as everyone else oh that would be um moro they found a guy named moro and his technology was supposedly from the future and that's what caused the industrial revolution to happen the bureau sort of leaked out that information and got things rolling where technology started going by leaps and bounds as it did in the late 19th century. But it was a man named Morrill holed up in, in a hideout somewhere, and the Bureau happened upon him, and I, I Eight, believe he escaped. But they were like, oh, look at what we found here. All these 18, neat plans. 1889, according to the book. Did you say Mo- Morrow or Morrow? Morrow, as in M-O-R-R-O-W, Morrow. Yes, Bruce Morrow. Bruce Morrow. Yeah. He was a uh, time traveler, was able to predict a number of important events in the future, which allowed him to become very rich, but also allowed him to build a number of underground shelters with teams ready for a disaster, which fortunately in this timeline never occurred. But in another one, it might have occurred. Yeah. (laughs) Other timelines, it definitely did. Oh, yeah. It happened in the late 80s, I think. Right. So so in other words, that name is familiar. Yes, 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 yes. It is very familiar, I would hope. I am in no way related to that name, other than the fact we both have it. But the biggest changeovers would occur when various pieces of technology were found. And that kind of depends on your campaign, where you let these pieces of technology fall in. If an alien spacecraft crash lands and the Bureau gets their hands on it, well, there's going to be a lot of technology that's suddenly going to be available that wasn't necessarily in somebody else's timeline. You're going to get that one player who wants to play the tech steampunk character. You're drinking from the fire hose if you give him an alien craft. He'll want to sit there and reverse engineer everything. Yeah, but not necessarily. I mean, if you're talking something from the 1870s and you get a spaceship built with nanotechnology, lots of pretty black boxes. You have no clue how anything works. Let's see. Most (laughs) aliens that we see would be PL-7. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, PL4 with PL7 technology, it might as well be magic. Yeah. Yep. And I think you're right, Trav. I think that in the early days, you're going to see people using some technology, some great Wild Wild West type technology. Oh, yes. Okay. Lee Resurner, yeah. gentlemen. Oh, yeah. It, right. it's steampunk, but, it's going to be that. Yeah. Right. But yeah. you're also well, going to be seeing them looking more for like a combination with magical solutions as well, because that's the best technology they have. Yeah, and when it comes to Wild Wild West, I'd suggest the TV series, not the movie. The movie is definitely steampunk and definitely way too high. Yeah, the, the series had a lot better ideas. You know, they yeah. were small pieces that really were tactically used and that made a big difference. And and as far as your play is concerned, you'll probably like it a lot more. Yeah, I think than trying to go toward anything that was in the movie. Still, if you run into a Loveless. Run for it. <laughs> Loveless was the arch villain of the series. So your early days, you're going to have technology. You should have lots of cute devices like spring-loaded devices, pens that spray caustic materials, uh, early forms of plastic explosives. Those are all in the uh, black powder manual. They had something else in the black powder manual, which I thought was kind of funny. Smart horses. Now, basically, these are just well-bred horses that had higher than normal intelligence, and sometimes a bit of an attitude. You would end up with the horse like... Briscoe County Jr. Comet, yes. Mm-hmm. The, the horse that sometimes was about as smart as Bowler and County, you know, but... Smarter. <laughs> and they would have the attitude where if you tried to jump off the cliff on their back, they'd move. It's like, you're not landing on my back from that height. Forget that noise. Or if you want to go back, you remember a really old Arnold Schwarzenegger movie called The Villain? Oh, yeah. I'm going to get more wood for the fire. Yeah, the handsome stranger. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that horse. Yeah. The villain's horse. Whiskey. Whiskey. You whiskey, you traitor. Yeah. <laughs> but also Ren Tin Tin. He was with the cavalry, and he was as smart as a person. 
The only difference between him and, and anybody else was he couldn't talk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is with, with smart horses, though, what you're talking about are war horses for the days of old. I mean, a knight's war horse was probably in the same range and probably even more dangerous. Or maybe they're at the same level. If a knight said, get him, his horse would try to get him. They were kind of bred for intelligence. So, I mean, you had very yep. early, yep. what's the term I'm looking at? I want to say eugenics. Yep. Sure. Oh, yeah, sure. For breeding horses to try to give... I mean, obviously, you're not going to have, you know, any type of genetic manipulation. The only thing you had at PL4 was breeding. But, Trav, you can be breeding those horses with unicorns or pegasi or any other supernatural creature to give them that little extra edge that they wouldn't normally have. I really like about the whole Wild West setting and steampunk era and such with Bureau 13 is that you can still have things like magical swords that people could use. Oh, yeah, like a cavalry saber or yeah, sure. daggers or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can still have augmented melee weapons and have an Indian with a longbow that magic arrows and stuff. Oh, and the yeah. the cult from Supernatural. Indians with bulletproof shirts. Yeah, or... the ghost dancers. Yes, I remember yes. having to run that in a pulp era ghost dancers yeah so yeah you can have fledgling techno magic granted you're not going to be having you know the type of stuff you'd have in the bureau but still putting a plus one bonus on a revolver or a bane on a revolver like a bane spell which in in D would be uh plus two to hit and plus two d6 toward a particular uh type of creature you could have that. Well, obviously, you're going to want it after the Witch and the Alchemist are brought into play, which is the late 1880s. But that alchemist could sit there and, you know, yeah. given time, yeah, I have this dagger that's good against undead, or I've got these this gun that's good against shamans or whatever. You know, so, yeah, you can start bringing that in. And, of course, that's to counter all of these indigenous peoples, the American Indians who have their magic bows and arrows, the the tongs that have their magical Chinese weaponry. Then you also have your imbued items. And we just had the Civil War, so there's probably a lot of imbued items, like Sherman's sword. It sets fire to anything it touches. Okay, so these are like artifacts. Yes, they've been imbued. Imagine you go to Antium, and you start digging the balls out of the corpses that are still left in the fields. The residual psychic energy could be used to make them more powerful shots, yeah. Right. Or you could tap it for use for something else. So you could take that shot and maybe use it against ghosts or something because it was the bullet that killed somebody. So maybe it holds that essence or or holds some kind of death energy about it. Yeah, residual psychic or uh, magical energy. Yeah, yeah, I get get that. Okay. Who was the general who uttered that famous line? They're busy. Busy pot shots are being taken around. He he stands and says they couldn't hit, hit an elephant from this, and he then he gets shot. At that right. point, that rifle may become imbued as one of the world's greatest sniper rifles. Mm-hmm. It can hit anything at any distance, distance of the round. So yeah, that's that'd be something to have if you can find that rifle. <laughs> These are things that are still floating around even in the modern day. But initially, the kind of quests that you're going to be going on are going to be primarily ones that are of great danger to the United States. You're not Mm -hmm. going to be supernatural policemen unless, of course, you see some creature that, if not curbed now, is going to become a real problem in the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of the roving bureau team, well, at first they weren't going to have roving bureau teams. Since Baker worked out of Washington, D.C., He probably did stuff on the eastern seaboard. Now, in time, there was, I believe, an office in New Orleans, and I believe there was a western office out in Carson City, Nevada. That's right. That was run by Horace Gordon. So, yeah, they had to branch out because they realized, okay, in the south there's a lot of supernatural stuff, and out west there's a lot of supernatural stuff. They needed branch offices, but that was 15, 20 years down the road. Until then, they worked out of D.C., Baker had his little private hidden office and just basically information. You have your guys, you know, your Baker's dozen has their contacts, and especially the the shady ones are going, okay, yeah, I got a buddy of mine who found out that there's some weird creatures stalking around, you know, in New York City. We need to ride up there. And even then, Washington, D.C. to New York is probably, well, by horseback or carriage, 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot more than it is by car. So, you know, it took them a week or two to get there and track this thing down. And But still, you're going to have adventures mainly through those type of contacts on the eastern seaboard, especially in the northeast. Yellow journalism. Ah, yes, yes. The stories of, you know, Indian uprisings and, Tree, which, yeah, and, and, all, and all kinds of bizarre things out in the West. But the, yeah. the, the thing that's curbing that, again, is that new sense of rationalism that's becoming the prominent point of view. It's going to help start the whole idea of suppressing knowledge of the supernatural because the public doesn't really want to know. They want their world to be a rational world. And yep, everything become, in black and white, yes. Yeah, yeah. that's becoming the way of the, of the world at that time. This is the time period where the Bureau makes one of its most bestest buddies, the Wind Willow Coven. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> bestest buddies. I'm noting sarcasm there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's destroyed the Coven three times during this time period. But at the same time, there's a real, you know, spiritualism has taken hold. Mm-hmm. See, the Enlightenment was sort of like the early 1800s, but it's still going on. I mean, it, you know, the Enlightenment wasn't just the early 1800s. It carried on. Well, I was talking about rationalism. True, which sort of comes out of the Enlightenment. Yes. And, but at the same time, you had all this neo-spiritualism that was coming out of there, which continues on. I mean, it continues on deep into the 20s and such. So you've also got this neo-spiritualism that's going on, sort of like counter the whole enlightenment as well. Well, I'm not sure that's true because I think that some of that neo-spiritualism was the idea that we apply the sciences and observations. We can actually learn how these things work, how the spiritual world works. Yeah, they try to quantify and codify all this stuff. Yeah, There was this spiritual movement. Yes, that people were getting into seances and ghosts and all that stuff. Uh, Houdini was a big proponent against all that. Oh, yeah, he was a huge skeptic. Yeah, he had all this, and he would pick things apart. He hated all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but Arthur Conan Doyle and Thomas Edison were proponents of it. Thomas Edison actually tried to build a spirit phone. Yeah, necrophone, yeah. Arthur Conan Doyle, even though he wrote probably one of the most skeptical characters in history, Sherlock Holmes, Yet he didn't prescribe to those beliefs. So it's just kind of funny. Yeah. Because you had this real dualistic belief system that was going on at the time. That's what I was just trying to point out is that there was a counter to that rationalism. There was a a subculture that was buying into the spiritual uh, aspects even more. But toward his later years, Edison was calling it the Odic Force. Mm. He was thinking along the line of morphic fields and stuff like that. Right. I think that there was an area that was getting a lot of credibility but at the same time, they were saying, yeah, but all those stories about Bigfoot and swamp monsters and things like that, those are just old stories. Mm-hmm. It's just like in the when you got into the 60s and 70s and 80s, all of a sudden, you know, psychic powers became a really – got a lot of credibility. But at the same time, they weren't going around and saying, yeah, and, and also alien you know, uh, invasion was getting a lot of credibility, too. But you still weren't turning around and saying, yeah, but you know, there are people making an- reanimating bodies in their, in their labs or you know, the vampires and, and all that stuff. People weren't buying into that. They were buying into a particular kind of, of supernaturalism. Yeah. Okay. This is also a time period where a certain denizen of, of Seattle was – Created the best way to term is was born when he died, and that's Sylvester the mummy. He was killed in eighteen in the eighteen eighties, best they can tell, and he came back as a mummy. No one knows that who what he was before because no one knows who he was. He could have been a bureau agent for all we know. He's come back. There's a possible storyline there. What caused this guy to die, and why did he come back as a mummy? Hmm. Okay, we are wrapping up. Black Potter and the whole, I guess you could call it the steampunk era, which kind of ends at the time around World War One. Well, from World War One on would be known as the pulp era. Yeah. Yes. Diesel punk, some people call the newer people call it. I'm sticking with pulp. Diesel punk's more in the 40s and 50s. Uh, yeah. no, a little earlier. I think that 20s and 30s, just putting this, a little bit of steampunk yeah. into But let's talk about during the war, during the, the, the Great European War at the time, which is, which was what it was called, not the, not World War One. it was the Great European War. The war to uh, end all war. Yeah. Or the Great War. You know, there were several names for what we know as World War One. There was a lot of hysteria about the Germans. 
Weimar Republic, as it was called. The thing is, America could have gone on either side of this battle. We decided, for various reasons, to go on the Allied side. Also, you had the Bolshevik Revolution going on. The the Tsar was, okay, hey, look, there's the door. You had Rasputin, the Mad Monk. But as far as the Bureau, they still were in America. They did not have a huge world presence because America back then was very isolationist still. We were. We were totally isolationist. So, yeah, the Bureau would be coming out of this turn of the century and all of a sudden... Boom, America's thrust into world events by the assassination of uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand yep. by, I believe, a Serbian student, I believe, is what caused that. Yeah, he was assassinated. Because his driver got lost. Yeah. Literally, his driver got lost, went down the wrong street, and some guy saw him and said, ah, and decided to take, take advantage of the situation. And that one random event caused the whole yeah. world to, yeah. Well, the thing is, I can see a, a use for the Bureau during the war, because, okay, once America went across into Europe, they're going to need protection, both from the German military and the German supernatural. Let's just take vampires, okay? Oh, yeah. European vampires, of course, they've been in this game longer than anybody. That's pretty much their home ground. Yeah. Considering Bulgaria was, was one of the nations and the central powers, yeah. <laughs> so we send soldiers over there, and if the, you know, let's say the, the German, the Kaiser at the time, has allied with some Bulgarian vampire to help him do his, you know, his stuff, we're going to need something to counter that. So you're saying Bureau agents might have even been placed in a team. Let's say, oh, well, we're hearing that there's all sorts of supernatural stuff. Let's put an agent or two on each squad of our boys over there. Our, I believe the term is doughboys was what we called it. Yeah, that, let's put a, a bureau agent and a squad of doughboys so that way then we have somebody keeping an eye on this. And, of course, as they were fighting this, we were getting more and more bureau agents into the fold because of the fact that these, you know, doughboys who are just going over there defending their country and, you know, helping Europe all of a sudden – they're involved in some stuff got really, really heavy. Let me put it to you this way. All right. We've got American soldiers over in Germany fighting the Germans or any one of the surrounding companies where, or countries where they've, you know, they've got forces. You know, this general has made some kind of allies with some vampire lord in the area. What is he going to do? He's going to send in a bunch of his minion vampires to kill the soldiers in their sleep. You know, and these things are going to come in at nighttime and slaughter them. Or they're going to use their werewolf allies or whatever. So, you know, our boys are not going to be equipped to deal with that. But if you had a small team of bureau agents over there who were looking out for them, you know, because they're not going to have a whole bunch of supernatural creatures doing this. I mean, you could have a handful of werewolves tear through an entire company and, and really eviscerate it. Oh, yeah. yeah. However, if you had a couple of bureau agents there with some Tommy guns, well, no, World War One, no Tommy guns. Sten, Sten guns, yes. Sten guns filled with silver bullets. These werewolves come tearing through, and all of a sudden, they get mowed down with silver bullets, which they were not expecting because they didn't know that we know, that they know, that who, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so they come in, they're, you know, tearing through everybody, and all of a sudden, ba 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 and their numbers get cut down. It's as big a surprise to them as they would be to normal soldiers. You know, the Bureau is relatively new still. Well, let's see, the Bureau, 18, late 1860s, and it's 1915, 1916. 1914 to 18 was World War I. So, yeah, the mid-teens, they're around about 50 years. I mean, they've got some experience under their belt. The Europeans probably don't know a whole lot about them because, remember, the United States was an isolated nation up until World War I. Bureau 13 is a, an American phenomenon. Actually, no, it wasn't. About every major nation out there has a bureau, has their version of a bureau teams. Yeah, the, the Brits had the farm, which was MI-13. Yeah. France had theirs, a Fantomatique, I think it was. But, but did they all form around the same time? Some of them were ancient orders that had been around for 500 years. The Bureau was the relatively the new boys on the block. So then I, I see during World War One partnerships. The Bureau makes contact with its counterparts in Europe. Right, of course. And the war forces that into, into being. And the Bureau and the farm, as MI-13 is called, they get tight. I mean, the Bureau and the farm practically work together. Even today in the Bureau, there's constant agent exchange. You might even have a British agent 
working for the Bureau and Americans working for the farm on a regular basis. It's better than getting a Torchwood agent over, though. (laughs) Now that we're talking about the Great War, I see this as being that ground where those ties were made. Yeah. You had the central powers using their supernatural and you have the Brits and the French and... The Italians. They're on our side this time. Yeah, the Italians would have their... Any supernatural they would have. And here come the Americans, and they're thinking, oh, they're just Americans. Okay, fine, they're bringing manpower. They're going to be quite surprised when it's like, no, 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 we've got our stuff. As a matter of fact, some of you people brought your stuff over, and we've had to fight it, so we know a thing or two about this. And just good old American ingenuity and know-how, and it's going to be a very jingoistic attitude where they're thinking, oh yeah, these Yanks, we're going to come in and just mow them all down because, you know. Well, don't forget that we did have the Lafayette Expedrille, the Americans who went to France to fight in the war because America wasn't fighting in the war, so they were flying the various aircraft in France. There could have been a version of that from the Bureau. And talking about cool characters to play, because we're, we're talking about playing in these eras, right? Let's say you wanted to play a campaign during World War One, but you already want to have the Americans involved. You could have a character from from that French exchange who's had some experience. Another character could be a Native American who's a shaman who knows magic and has dealt with like Manitous and you know has actually dealt with spiritual things already. You know, maybe he's fought a couple Yeti or something. You could have someone playing like a Brit agent who's had some experience. You know, you could put together a really cool team of, of really like eclectic, neat characters. They're going to be behind the lines on the other side because really they're almost no use to the guys on our side. They need to be on the other side of the lines doing their stuff. Okay, parlez-vous français? Because uh, <laughs> remember the, the trenches were in France. Right. In Yves and a few other places. You know, we, we want to cast the central powers as the bad guys because, of course, they weren't us. So, of course, they would do all the evil stuff. We would never do anything evil. <laughs> yeah, it was a very black and white type of oh. attitude leading the first half of the previous century. I'm not trying to say that that's the way you should run it or, or that's the way it should be. I'm just saying that, you know, this is how I'm envisioning it. Right. If you want to keep true to how we've been raised by it, I mean, you can sit there and, and, and try to put modern stuff into right. it. But keeping the flavor of that particular genre, yeah, you're going to end up, okay, we're good, they're bad, right. black and white, very little gray. So they would be the ones sending the zombies across the battle lines. So you'd be shooting at them with your machine guns. It's like, these guys aren't going down. What the heck? You know, in the trench warfare. And then the zombies that come up over, you know, over the trenches. And that's where the bureau teams would say, no, no, no. What you need to do is lay down a line of salt across the edge of our trenches. You know, some cool stuff you could do. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the, the, the horrific thing is that they're... Our boys, mm-hmm. the zombies, they went over the top and they got mowed down. The body's still out there. And then that German necromancer or Italian or Austrian or whatever necromancer, wooga unga, and raises up like a dozen or so of them up. And there are guys. Yes. Missing arms, legs, probably a head. You never know because these are magic zombies. Therefore, they don't obey your standard zombie rules as per a zombie show. <laughs> Darn it. Now I totally want to run a convention game based on this. This would be awesome. Over there. You got this title. Over there. <laughs> Dudes, we got to do this next. Bruce, you hear this? Next Dragon Con. Okay. <laughs> this sounds like a great adventure. We're going to need a lot of different adventures if we're going to run all kinds of adventures there at dragon con so yeah that's good i like yeah. it remember you have a lot of countries that got overrun and it's quite possible that there's going to be people in those countries or aristocrats and such who might have ancient ties to supernatural things they're saying well if they're going to take my country away from me then i'm going to unleash the golem or whatever and they start marching off and you as a bureau agent might have to intercede and, and essentially take the side of the central powers seemingly, but really all you're really trying to do is protect everybody and taking that monster down, keeping us from going down that dark path you can't come back from. Yeah. I just realized Romania enters the war in 1916, and guess on whose sides it enters on? Mm. Not ours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Romania, that's not good. No, actually, take that back. 
three remaining armies deployed to the Romanian campaign. The only opposing force was the Austrian. Oh, they they actually joined our side. Uh, okay, well, this, that might be handy. Yeah. And guess where they were from? Mm. Transylvania! <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And you know what? We're not always the good guys. You know, we, we do think we do things underhanded to win the war. I mean, it's, it's about winning. So I could see our side employing vampires. I mean, did you ever see, um, remember the comic Weird War where they had, had like a vampire and a Frankenstein's monster and a werewolf and they were the, actually the heroes during the World War II era? Is that a DC comic? Yeah, I remember. Very old school. It was uh, maybe it was Creature Creature Commandos, I think is what it was called. Yeah. Ah. And they were like super like a superhero team fighting World War II. And and yeah, it was like a, it was a vampire and a and a werewolf and a Frankenstein's monster. It was actually a really cool comic. If we kind of expand on the on the Bureau Thirteen stuff that that we were talking about about you know letting players play monsters as well, that would be a good option. Yeah, you could get the American government into okay. We have these supernatural forces. We need to make these super tough soldiers to go in and do stuff that our boys can't do. Okay, well we have these criminals here that otherwise would be put on death row or. Let's give them clemency if they survive the experiment. They do, and now they're vampires. And what do you do when you capture a werewolf or, or a vampire? Is it the bureau's place to exterminate them? Do they take them prisoner? What if the guy surrenders? What if the vampire says, "All right, look, you know, I can't help it. I'm a vampire. What do you want me to do? You know, I give up. You know, I want to repent, but I don't know how." Do you slaughter him in the street? It really depends on how long he's been doing his business. If he's been doing it for the past 400 years, he's getting a stake in the heart. But, but, but you hear what I'm saying? If he's only freshly minted, he's only a few years or so old, okay, there's a chance that he may, you know, might, be, might repent. Let's take that example. And let's say somebody's playing a character. They want to they play a vampire. And they, they say, look, I want to play a vampire who's repentant. You know, I, I became a vampire. I have no choice but to, to drain blood or else I'm going to die. You know, what, what am I supposed to do? If that's the character you know you want to play, okay, you gotta remember it depends on which version of vampires you're talking about. You're talking about you know classical D and D vampires. One bite you can turn to a vampire potentially. If you're talking more along the, along the mythos, you have to want to be a vampire, become a vampire. Bureau thirteen allows for everything. You're a victim. Yeah, it's the more the the, the disease version of vampires. Yeah, you're a victim. But you don't want to be a bad guy. You want to be a good guy. You want you want to work for the bureau. You tell them, look, you know, I'll help you, whatever, or, or you know, you guys just kill me, put me in my misery, whatever. And the bureau decides, well, hey, we can use this guy, you know. But I'm saying that that's the character you want to play, which is why I really want to develop this for the for the bureau thirteen Savage Worlds, because I think it makes for a very interesting character. So then you could create this squad of creature commandos. I guess if you're playing some vampires, you have to do night missions, whatever. Let's say you're playing a werewolf or some kind of Promethean, some kind of Frankenstein's monster type of guy. You can have some really cool adventures. Sounds like Cross Between Alphas, which is the current show on, on Sci-Fi Channel. And that one with Matthew Broderick, where he was the the white commander of the first black regiment in, in the Civil War. Glory, you have one normal. He's person in charge. Everyone else is a monster. I see. I think that would be great. I think that would make for a great adventure. I think it make for, for a great campaign. Yeah, it could, yeah. During World War One. yeah, it could be. If you're really trying to play monsters who want to be heroes, the, the vampire with a soul or whatever, how interesting of a character is that? I mean, that is very hard to play yep. if you want to do it right. If you want to do it with give it its justice, this is a very difficult character to play. You definitely have a habit. Right. <laughs> it's, Major it's, habit. <laughs> right. Yeah. You have to think of ways around it. In other words, you know, yes, I, you know, I have to drain blood, but I don't have to kill my victims. I could drain different victims. I could, I could always be kind of starving myself. Oh, remember World War One is when they started doing blood banks. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Almost expired blood. Gotta figure if it's expired, it's no good. It's gotta be almost expired. And you know what, John? The enemy doesn't count. You can drain them dry. Oh yeah. Well, unless you're infectious. If you're infectious, that's a that's a different problem. What was it? No, you drain them dry, kill them, cut their head off. Sure, but I'm saying that they're the enemy, so you can kill them. That's okay. Yeah, you have no compunctions against taking them out. Yeah, because you would have shot them. You know, it's fair game, and no one's going to say anything bad about it. Of course, I can just see it now. The bureau mounts a special expedition up to the Arctic. To uh, dig up a certain, you know, manufactured man who was frozen in a block of ice to bring him back down and see if he's willing to work for the Bureau. <laughs> That'd be cool. And you know what? Based upon the story, he would be probably. He'd be a good character to play. Yes. I mean, he wasn't a bad guy. And for those of you who are going, what? 
Oh, come on, stop it. They know. Frankenstein's monster. I, I, I hate to say this. No, not everyone does. If you're listening to this and you didn't know that, shame on you. The best Frankenstein's monster version I ever saw was the one with Mr. Magoo. That's all I'm saying. Mr. Magoo? Yes. Oh, mm. oh, oh, Magoo, you've done it again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> did I see that one? He, he did the Frankenstein's monster, and they did it. They more or less followed the storyline. Huh. Except that it made Frankenstein's monster worse because he was going to make a whole army of Frankenstein's monsters in the end. But otherwise, it was a fairly interesting, fairly dark Magoo story. <laughs> mm. I'm going to have to look that up on YouTube. The one thing that you have going for you in these war years is yeah. that people are in situations where they really think that the world is about to end, that their way of life is going to be destroyed if they don't succeed in whatever their endeavor is in these warfare. So therefore, there's going to be a whole lot of latitude given. There's some things that are going to be able to happen that they would never happen under other peacetime situations, such as squads of monsters. So it's yeah. a good opportunity to do things that you would never do, and it would never happen any other time. It does not end well. It ends in a very bad, very badly negotiated peace. In two decades, it leads to this, the war to end all wars, World War II. Yes. And honestly, if you look back on that, it really couldn't have gone any other way. But in, the, in between those two wars was what we call the pulp era, the 20s and 30s. Now, you had all these guys that came back from World War I. I believe they were known as the Lost Generation. So you had all these very haunted souls coming back in 1918, 1919, 1920. They just had seen horrors. And, I mean, we're talking just mundane. Of course, there was a supernatural event supposedly during World War I over a battlefield that both the Central and the Allied powers saw. It was like a bright light. This was historically documented. There was this bright light in the sky that just stopped the battle. So you even had that type of stuff that just scared the daylight out of these young boys that went over to Europe to defend the country, yeah. to save the world. And they came back and they were just a bunch of haunted souls. Now, yeah. they'd come back... And they're trying to reintegrate society. Now, if you're a bureau agent, you'd seen all this this stuff, and you're coming back. Well, now you're fighting back on your home turf, and then you've got the stuff leading in the Great Depression, which that causes all sorts of things to happen. You could run a Prohibition-era game. The Great Depression was caused by bashing a demon from Wall Street. Yes, 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 that's right. So, you know, you have that going on, so even... That was caused by the supernatural and the Bureau. I don't know if you want to role play that or, you know, start a campaign based on on that event in media res, as Bruce calls it. But, yeah, the 20s and 30s. Now, we already have plenty of uh, mystery men going around, you know, fighting crime throughout various cities during the pulp era. You got the Shadow of the Avenger, you know, Phantom. We've already got plenty of background material for that. The Bureau, they could be coming in and they could be fighting the stuff that the Shadow doesn't deal with, even though the Shadow did have his psychic powers. And the Phantom had his heightened abilities, and I, I'm trying to recall what the Avenger had. I know he had the white skin. He was called the Avenger. His wife and child were dumped into Lake Michigan on an airplane trip, and he basically went into shock, and he, his face paralyzed and drained of all color, and he was able to mold it with his fingers into basically take on other people. But he was slight in build, so he had to wear lifts to be appear taller, and basically he was a master of disguise. Until he went through this car wash, and somehow or another that reversed paralysis. I, I was doing some research for something I'm working on, and I seem to remember reading about the Avenger and stating that the Avenger came, it was a little too little, a little too late. It was sort of like at the kind of at the end of the pulp era and it was trying to catch up with like the Phantom and all these other things that, that had come before and it just – it never took – yeah, it was a little too late and he never really got fully developed. Because these mystery men were starting to come out, you could have a bureau team of these mystery men. A good D20 supplement for this is Adventure D20 where you have these mystery men. You have characters like uh, Rick O'Connell in the, in the Mummy movies – or you could do the Shadow or the Phantom or these 20s-type 
basically precursors to superheroes because they were just above human. They might have had a power here or there, which the Bureau might have given them, or they might have had it since worked for the Bureau. But essentially, they were still pretty yeah. much human. You didn't have people flying around and bullets bouncing off their chests, yeah. heat vision, but you might have had clouding men's minds or maybe light mind reading. Shallow had psychic invisibility. He could cloud men's minds and you couldn't see him or you could just see maybe a shadow. The shadow movie of Alec Baldwin, it's okay. It's it's visually stunning. But yeah, yeah the bureau, a bureau team full of these very lightly super-powered people banding together and then the bureau funding them, that would be a heck of a campaign because it would be like a very early superhero campaign. And this is also the time when the uh, favored son of Krypton arrived. Ah, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> These mystery men were the precursors to what we know as superheroes today. Now, I mean, I've, I've had my share of comic books, but it began in the pulp era and yeah. action comics, I want to say 1939. Yeah. Again, you know, I, I like to get back to the Savage Worlds because that's what John and I are really working on a lot. Savage World, this is the... This is the prime setting for Savage Worlds. Yeah. Nothing fits Savage Worlds better than the pulp era. At least as far as my experience is. You have guys with arcane background superpowers, but you only give them one power. How many powers do you need, John? Well, no, a lot of these heroes back in the 20s and 30s, these pulp heroes were one-trick ponies. Yeah. They didn't have a multitude of powers like Superman did. That was the first one. He had strength and the leaping and the invulnerability and the heat vision and all this. But honestly, they didn't need it because guess what the enemy had? Nothing. Yeah. The enemy was some mastermind who came up with good plans. Yeah, who had his his mooks and his goons running in. He had an army of guys and he was really smart and he set the situation so you were always trying to play catch up with him. So the hero needed that power because he was always behind the eight ball. And also you did have the still the mysticism because you had and, and I hate using the stereotype because then it brings in it, but you had the the oriental, you know, mastermind from, you know Yellow like, Peril. Who man yeah. too. Uh, yeah, see, and you had that. And you had if you fought on the West Coast, you were still fighting the tongs and all that, or you had the Japanese had their stuff. And in New York, you had the beginnings of the Nazi, uh, what's the term? Fifth Column, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. The Fifth Columnist coming in and starting to foment and agitate here in, in the United States. Yeah, it's also the age of prohibition. Yeah, and right. So you had mobsters going on. You had your Al Capone and Elliot Ness. That would be another neat bureau campaign. One of the things that we haven't talked about here in this area is that right after World War II, there was a huge influx of refugees and people to the United States. You mean World War I? Yes, I meant World War I. If I didn't. Okay, all right, all right. All right, World War I. And, uh, and what this caused, and this was our first real incident where we had people that were rapidly encroaching on the ecology of a lot of these supernatural creatures. Mm. Now, on one hand, you had the cities that were literally filled to bursting of, of refugees and people who had no previous identity. They I mean they were strangers next to each other. Lots of opportunities there for one person to bring in something that, you know, a, a, a secret or or, or a create a, a gang, as you said, or, or a cabalist or something like that. But also as they moved out into the West and, and, and North to, to go and take over the land and to spread out, says all these natural supernaturals, the ones we haven't really talked about too much, says they were all finding themselves suddenly encroached upon and you're getting these backlash, the supernatural, uh, what almost seems like a nature backlash as we do go and do these kinds of things. And these people are uh, not always prepared to identify what it is that's happening. So you're going to need a lot more bureau agents at this time. And I, I see this as one of the prime times of recruiting agents for the bureau is during this period of time because of the great need that's suddenly arising. Well, because yeah. in 1910 is when the on-the-road teams began, where right. teams started traveling. Granted, they didn't have no Colorado or anything. That didn't come out until, like, the 80s. But you still had them there in their Model A's and their Model T's, riding yeah. around on the back roads of this country and still out in, well, the Wild West was done. But, I mean, you still had a lot of frontier. You still had the Great Plains, which there were still very small towns, and you had 40, 50, 60, 100 miles between towns where it was nothing but farmland and wilderness. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. The Rockies. Um, as you pointed out, from World War One, you probably had a lot of doughboys who had basically been exposed to supernatural potential recruits right there. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know that the ones that the Bureau didn't send over, you yeah. had the potential ones coming back. If only for that supernatural event that occurred mm-hmm. toward the end of World War One, where it was this whitish-purple light, I think, and it just... Boom! Yeah, yeah. For like thirty-five seconds over the battlefield, and everybody just stopped. Because who in your hometown is going to understand when you start talking about some of the crazy things that might have happened to you over there that it might have been of supernatural origin? Right. You know, like uh, that's where you know shell shock came in. You must be shell shocked. Yeah. I, unfortunately, it does mean that you know these characters you are playing in a system that supports hindrances or disadvantages. You got PSTD. You got PTSD. That's what it's called now. When it yeah. came out in World War One, it was shell shock. We yeah. know it today as post-traumatic stress right. disorder. And, be- and before that, it was called battle fatigue. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they had known in Europe, most of them had only known cavalry and maybe a cannon. And all of a sudden, here comes this mechanized tank rolling over at the Lost Generation. These haunted souls coming back just from the mundane stuff and then imagine throwing in supernatural stuff, too. A lot of them had to become bureau agents because that's all they could understand. They couldn't yeah. go back to a civilian life. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.